sermons are a lot like stump speeches. If you want people to like what you say enough to put some money in the plate, then you'd better talk about the things that they want to hear. To that end, love is pretty popular. I have never heard someone complain about a sermon about love. Similarly, caring for those in need ranks right up there, as do forgiveness and reconciliation. A, a sermon on forgiveness and reconciliation helps us feel like we're a part of something important. Hospitality is popular too, with a lure of thinking that we might give of ourselves to those who would benefit from our kindness. And you don't need any polling data to tell you that peace is popular among the people in the pews. Love, prosperity, forgiveness, reconciliation, hospitality, and peace. That's a platform that just about anybody could support. You don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat, a Christian or an atheist, an Episcopalian, or a Methodist to think that those are good things. But the problem with only talking about the good things that everyone wants to hear is that it usually doesn't lead to a lot getting done. Prophets, on the other hand, don't care much for stump speeches, do they? They don't come to tell us what we want to hear, but what God wants us to hear. I've noticed that when God speaks, it seems God does so not only to hear herself talk, but instead because we need to hear what God is saying. I've also noticed that we typically don't like hearing the thing that we need to hear, which is why prophets make terrible politicians. <laughs> and it's also why prophets are almost as bad at being rectors of downtown churches. Jesus was a prophet. We try to forget it, but Jesus didn't come to earth to tell people what they wanted to hear. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, Jesus declares. You think I've come to bring peace? No, not peace, but division. Fire, stress, division. These are the images Jesus uses to describe his ministry. Why doesn't Jesus talk about the things we want him to talk about? Why, Why does he insist on speaking of division and not just the kind of division that is represented by those broad stroke lines that separate huge segments of society, but more troubling than that, the minuscule fracturing splinters that pull even families apart, fathers against sons, sons against fathers, mothers against daughters, and daughters against mothers, and so on. Why does Jesus insist on division instead of harmony? Because that platform of love, prosperity, forgiveness, reconciliation, hospitality, and peace, those things come with a cost. Unconditional love is a great idea, 
until you see that it's your enemy nestled in the bosom of God. Truly caring for those in need means ending poverty. And although there is enough wealth to go around, it's got to come from somewhere, which means true prosperity requires some to live on less. Forgiveness and reconciliation are great in theory, but what about when it's your turn to say, I'm sorry? Or even harder, when it's your turn to say, I forgive you? Hospitality is the sort of thing anyone can get behind. A practical moment to offer kindness to someone in need. But what happens when that kindness is demanded of us at an inopportune time? Or worse, demanded by someone who refuses to repay our generosity with basic gratitude? Peace. Surely peace is God's will for the earth. Luke is the gospel writer who mentions peace more than anyone else. Just two chapters earlier, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples to allow their peace to rest on any home they would enter. But God's peace isn't the absence of conflict. It's that state of wholeness that only exists after God's great and unequivocal leveling that fiery purification that Jesus has in mind. No wonder people aren't enthused about his vision for the world. Several years ago, a colleague remarked that another priest had invited him to attend a conference. It will change your life, that other priest said. But my friend responded, I like my life just the way it is. Thank you very much. Why would I want it to change? Jesus came to change everything, to turn the whole world upside down. We like to think that that change means good news for the poor and the oppressed, the immigrant and the refugee, but only if it comes at a cost that will be borne by someone else. The ultra-rich, the super-powerful, the eminently connected, the unquestionably privileged. But if we think that change that Jesus envisions for the world won't include a change in us, then we haven't been listening to what he's been saying. I have come to bring fire to the earth, Jesus says, and how I wish it were already kindled. When we look around do we see what Jesus sees? Do we see a world ripe for that fiery transformation? Or do we see something else? We see a cloud forming in the west and we know that rain is coming. We feel the south wind begin to blow and we know that summer's heat is on the way. We see the inverted yield curve and know that recession is not far ahead. You hypocrites, Jesus says to us. We know how to interpret the signs of the weather and the economy. Why won't we interpret the signs that Jesus has given us? The signs of the gospel are as clear as day. Why else would the powers of this world have nailed Jesus to the cross? But that gospel, we don't really want to hear it. 
we'd rather brush it aside or cover it up or disguise it with warm and fuzzy platitudes that make us feel like we're a part of something godly. In fact, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, we are yielding wild grapes. God has gifted us a vineyard on a very fertile hill. God has dug it and cleared it and planted it and tended it and guarded it. All the blessings and riches of our life have been given to us for one purpose, that we might bear fruit for the reign of God. And yet when God comes to collect the harvest, what does God find? Not grapes, but wild grapes. Not justice, but bloodshed. Not songs of righteousness, but the agonizing cry of those in need. Yes, God's dream for the world is that the super rich will be pulled down from their lofty perches and the desolate poor be lifted up from the dust. But there's a whole lot of us in between for whom God's dream requires transformation. And that transformation isn't something that we sit on the sidelines and watch. It is a baptism, an internal change, a breath, a vision, a dream that catches us up inside it. Despite being popular in so many circles, the reign of God cannot be funded by a wealth tax. That's because God's vision for the world is not a few rich giving up some of their resources so that the poor might have a little bit more. God's dream is bigger than that. God's dream is you and me and all of us inhabiting a world in which no one will tolerate hunger and poverty and oppression and degradation. It's a world in which none of us is happy with her life until everyone is happy with her life. And I don't know about you, but I like my life. I like my life a whole lot, and that's a problem. It's an affliction that makes it hard for me to hear what Jesus would say to me hard for me to embrace the message of the gospel, that transformative message that is costly. In fancy theological terms, we call that affliction sin, which is why I need that transformation to show up in my heart and my mind. That's why I need to be a part of the baptism that Jesus has come to give all of creation so that I will hear what Jesus would say to me a message we all need to hear. But until that gospel truth takes hold of our hearts and our minds, we will only hear what we want to hear. And the problem of that is that when people only hear what they want to hear, very little gets done. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.